it was announced that we would sing song 58 at the close of the lesson today. And it would certainly, again, be appropriate, it would seem, to be so thankful that this is the first day of a new year that the blessings that God has so abundantly poured upon us might be felt for another year and that we might be the faithful and strong servants of the Lord that He would have us to be. We at the Pippin Congregation have been blessed so mightily in the past and we continue to be so even at this very hour. I trust that as we each with the expectation look forward to this coming year, this year in which we now are a part, that we might be dedicated and devoted to directing it and living it in a way that would be pleasing to our Heavenly Father. You may have noted in the bulletin as well as on the wall to my left that the title of the lesson today has to do with the greatness of a servant. Just a few moments ago, Brother Cale read for us from the 10th chapter of Mark. We shall turn to that text in just a moment and give a bit more consideration to it. By way of introduction, though, it would seem entirely right to at least point our direction, our thinking, to that word service and that word servant. It is interesting to give some thought to the notion of service and servitude. It does occur frequently in the Bible. In fact, as you'll notice, some 154 times in the New Testament alone, we have mention made of the topic of service, the very use of the word servant, and that number is swamped as we give thought to its occurrence of some 982 times in the entirety of the Bible. In particular, you might notice that some 96 of those occurrences are within the gospel accounts themselves. That means that it was a frequent topic in the teaching of Jesus. It was a frequent topic in the livelihood of the Lord to exemplify the thought of servanthood and to demand it in the lives of those that would be His servants and those that would be His followers. It is for that reason that we should give a few moments reflection to the notion of a servant, to the topic of being a, a ser servant, and to see what in fact that might mean for our lives today. It would seem entirely fair to note, even as we begin, that this topic of servitude is not one that's terribly popular. Most of the world would in fact go against the thought of being a servant. But yet the Lord in these passages before us today not only states its importance, but states it's demanded. With that in mind, let's see what it was the Lord was teaching. What does it mean to be a servant? And what might that mean for you and for me today? Let's begin by attempting to appreciate the text. What was the context in which the Lord made these statements? Maybe that alone will shed a fair amount of light upon the thoroughness and the meaning of this passage. Mark chapter 10 opens in a rather remarkable fashion. Jesus and the disciples were moving in the direction toward Jerusalem. In fact, they had already arrived at the, at the region known as Judea. And as they had come to this place, we notice already this was the final major sojourn of the Lord while here in the flesh. While at Jerusalem, He would be arrested. He would be, in fact, opposed. He would be tried. He would be found guilty, and He would be crucified. All of that was going to take place here ever so shortly within the next few days of our Lord's life. You'll notice, not only had, might we make note of that in verse 1, but He was immediately peppered with a number of questions even after He arrived in Judea. The Pharisees approached Him and asked about the character of divorce. 
As the Lord answered that question, He highlighted the thoroughness of, first, the sanctity of marriage, the permanence of marriage. And as He did that, they were so amazed by His comments that they, in fact, responded, Who then do these things apply to? Even after highlighting the importance of marriage and the fact that whatsoever God hath joined together, let not man put asunder, verses 9 and 10, the Lord immediately followed it by asserting the need for humility. I highlighted that in the following way. Children were being brought to Jesus. The disciples were sending them away because they apparently did not think that was an appropriate usage of the Master's time. Jesus rebuked them for that and said, Suffer the little children to come to me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. He then taught so amazingly and unforgettably that you and I, even as adults, must in a trusting, faithful, and innocent way enter the kingdom just as a little child would. Those kind of characteristics will in many ways be apparent in the verses that follow because you'll notice the very next set of ideas are these. A rich young ruler came. This young ruler began by asking a marvelous question. Good master, what good thing must I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus began by saying, you know the commandments, keep them. The person rather quickly said, all these have I kept for my youth up. Jesus said, one more thing you lack. Go sell all you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. This man, you see, had made a substitution. He looked upon his great possessions. He looked upon the things that he had, and they were more important to him than his submission humbly to the things of God. That would not do. The text says he went away sorrowful. After this closed, we notice another discussion took place. Jesus at that point began to teach those disciples also about riches. He helped them see that riches are in fact a great blessing, but they must never be looked upon as the great means and the purpose in life. Perhaps that statement that's most memorable is this one. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. Those were the words of Jesus. Now, we have explanation for what that means. In the other gospel accounts, putting the thoughts together, the Lord was teaching if one trusts in his riches, if that is the place in which he puts the treasure of his life, he will have as much chance entering heaven as a, as a camel going through the eye of a needle. As you give thought to that, doesn't that impress upon us the importance of always keeping the wealth that we do enjoy in its proper perspective? in its proper appreciation, you begin to see in all of this the note of servitude. The rich young ruler needed to be a servant to Jesus. They could not be servants to their money. And even the character of this issue of divorce as it related to marriage, it was important to submit one to the other. The Lord isn't finished. Beginning at this point, Jesus spoke very pointedly to those disciples about what was going to happen in Jerusalem. The Son of Man, He said, will be arrested. The Son of Man, He said, will in fact be opposed by the Gentiles. The Son of Man will be put to death by those same Gentiles. But then He said, the Son of Man will rise the third day. 
the apostles, it would seem, did not understand all of that at that point. Because later they asked too many questions about what they should have understood had they known that. I would invite you to begin reading with me in verse 35. In the very aftermath of what we've just said, Jesus telling them the Son of Man is going to be crucified. The Son of Man is going to be opposed. The Son of Man is going to give His life. Verse 35 reads, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto Him, saying, Master, we would that Thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And He said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? They said unto Him, Grant unto us that we may see it, one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of? and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized with all shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared." And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to him and said unto them, You know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be a great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be chiefest shall be servant of all. For the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. Rather remarkable, isn't it? That here was Jesus speaking to them pointedly about what would befall Him within a matter of hours, that His life was going to be taken from Him. So cruelly He would be beaten, so unimaginably difficultly He would be crucified, and yet they were arguing over who is going to sit on the right and left hands in, in the glory of His kingdom. Sad, isn't it, that they misunderstood so much? You and I should never forget that James and John came and asked, We want to see it in positions of prominence. We want to occupy positions of authority. We want to be your right-hand men, Jesus. Let us occupy those positions. Jesus plainly said, You simply do not know what you're asking. He began by saying, Can you be baptized with the, with the baptism that I'm baptized with? Can you drink of the cup that I will drink of? They quickly responded, Yes, we can. Jesus did confirm, You will, in fact, be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. And you will drink of the cup that I will drink of. Little did they know at that time that that meant the suffering that they themselves would experience. They would drink of the crucible of pain. The apostles had to endure much for the cause of the Master. They did suffer much. Some of them were cruelly beaten. They, in fact, suffered in such great ways. Jesus here correctly said, You will endure much, but you may not at this point realize it. You will be baptized with the baptism of suffering. It was at that point that Jesus, in verse number 42, called them to Him. It says, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. 
but their great ones exercise authority upon them. It is common, isn't it, in the world to want to occupy positions of greatness, positions of authority, positions in which one realizes that others answer to him. After all, isn't it true that we often encourage and see it in the world about us, and you and I often strive after it? Perhaps we should then use that as a motivation for giving thought to this text before us. Jesus here seems to say that the one that's the greatest is the one that's the servant. The one that's the chiefest is the one that's the humblest servant of all. What then does that say about the things for which you and I so often strive and the things that the world encourages? I would ask you to look at first this principle that seems so clear in this passage. It's to be interestingly noted that there is greatness that goes with service. Yes, indeed, greatness goes hand in hand with service. The twelve apostles did occupy a special place in the kingdom. Many passages make reference to that point. In Luke 6, beginning in verse 12, Jesus prayed all night prior to His selection of those apostles. And with their selection, they were in fact set in the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. They were spoken of as the foundation of the apostles and prophets in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. But to say that they were that foundation, James and John missed the point, didn't they? Do you suppose you and I would have been like James and John? We would have approached Jesus in private and said, Jesus, why don't you let me and my brother have a special place in your glory? You'll notice that the ten were displeased. They were somewhat angered by what James and John requested. They were somewhat upset by the fact these two wanted these special places of preeminence when they themselves were left out. I would ask you to give some thought to how in fact that reads. The apostles needed to learn a valiant lesson. And the lesson is this. True greatness comes with humble service. Maybe that's worth repeating. True greatness comes with humble service. James and John didn't seem to understand that point. They were still under the impression that this was going to be a physical kingdom. And they wanted to see it as Jesus' right-hand men in the kingdom. They seemed to know the Lord was the king of the kingdom. But they wanted to occupy positions of a special jurisdiction, a special authority and preeminence. But Jesus needed to correct them here and along the way teach all of them a lesson. It all begins in verse 42. He makes note of the Gentiles and says, Isn't it true in the ways of the world that it is a common thing to see that individuals strive for positions of rulership? Individuals strive for positions of authority. Verse 43 begins with these rather clenching words. But so shall it not be among you. It wasn't going to be that way amongst the apostles. And may I submit it isn't that way for those that are His true disciples still today. Let us think about that a bit more in these ways. Being the chiefest of all is to be the servant, to be the minister. Who among us likes to think about being a servant? Who among us likes to think about being a slave? When we read about slavery in our history books and even in the Bible, sometimes that reproaches us. 
we simply don't like to think about being a servant. We prefer our freedom. We like to be the one controlling others rather than being the one controlled by someone else. And yet Jesus here again says, Whosoever, verse 44, of you will be chiefest shall be servant of all. If you and I want to be great in the Lord's kingdom, we must be humbly a servant. If we want to be chiefest of all, we must be the servant of everyone. Isn't that a challenging statement? Some might well call that a paradox. And Johnny Ramsey once made the statement that a paradox is true standing on its head to gain attention, and maybe that's a fair assessment. To be the greatest, one must be the greatest servant. I would invite you to notice that even as one gives thought to that, it leads us to these concluding thoughts on that slide. It would seem that the disciples, those apostles, did come to appreciate that more notably when the events of Acts chapter 2 unfolded. When they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, they did seem to be overwhelmed with the realization of being simply a servant, and in so doing, what a great lesson that was for all of those about them. As you think about the greatness of being a servant, it does bring us to this tremendously grand principle. And this is the application for you and for me still today. As the Lord made this brief lecture on being a servant, it was as uncomfortable for the apostles as I'm sure it is for many of us today. After all, in life, we so often encourage the very opposite of this. At the work site, we want to advance through the ranks. We want to be promoted and we want to occupy the highest position that we can. We encourage our youngsters to be the best academically, to be the star of the ball team, to be the star of their play or their drama presentation. We don't often encourage them, you be servant of all. You be the lowliest and most humble servant you're able to be. Perhaps that leads us to this question, are we wrong in encouraging our children, for instance, to be the best? Are we encouraging ourselves to strive for that? Maybe that question deserves an answer. The thoughts at the bottom of that slide, I think, do a fair job of bringing to our attention some passages that help us see that we aren't talking about exactly the same thing in these two cases. Isn't it true that so often in the Word of God, we find God especially saying that He will bless those who are His children and do so in rather remarkable ways, often in physical ways, in such a way that they can influence others in a way that's positive. You and I can think of many in the Old Testament and you as well that were like that. What about Joseph? Here was one who was sold into slavery by his own brothers. As he was brought into that land of Egypt, he had nothing. And yet God blessed him so greatly in Genesis 37. He rose to prominence. Remember, he became the one to whom the jailer turned. He even interpreted the dreams of those that were about them. And then later, when the proper time came, that even the king, the Pharaoh, had dreams. Joseph was the one that was called, and he rose to prominence again. He became second in command only to the Pharaoh himself. Was it improper for Joseph to occupy that position? Was it improper for him to occupy a place whereby he could let his talents stand for themselves as a servant of God? Of course not. You might think about Daniel. 
Daniel was another one who himself was taken so far from his homeland as he was brought to Babylon. We might all remember that he too rose to a great position of prominence. But did he ever lose his faith in God? And did he allow that position that he occupied to be one whereby he could in fact make a strong stand for that which was truth? The answer is no. May I submit to each of us today that to strive to be the best at our jobs or to be the best in school or to be the best in the other avenues of life is not only not improper, it is that that the Scriptures encourage us to do for those are putting into use our talents, our abilities, and the things God has given us. But as we use them, we must always remember to do so in humility, allowing God to lead us to those greater places and pastures in life. If we ourselves strive to make ourselves great, we shall be humbled and we shall be, in fact, abased. Those verses there at the bottom, I think, challenge us to appreciate that what the Lord spoke of in this position, on this occasion about service, was a general attitude of service and humility in all the things of life. It is that that is the demanding point for our consideration for the rest of this lesson. Being an humble servant, it is absolutely required by God that anyone who would be a servant of His must do so in an humble fashion. We are not above the Lord, we are not above God, and it is not our place to exalt ourselves to positions of preeminence. Rather, we must simply in humility allow God to use us in His kingdom, be that in whatever manner of service it may be. The greatest being to ever walk this earth once took a towel, girded himself, and washed the disciples' feet. And yet He was the Son of God. He was the Son of man. He again was the greatest of all, and yet he thought it nothing that he himself could wash their feet. After he did that in John chapter 13, did he not himself say that they too should in like manner or in a principled fashion do that same thing to others? Would you and I wash someone else's feet? Would we wash the feet of a brother or sister in Christ? Jesus wasn't there commanding that we do that in the element of a worship service, but He was making a principal statement. Are you and I humble enough and are we servant enough that we would be willing to do that? We should be. Are we? You'll notice along that line, we also appreciate these statements otherwise made about the example of Jesus in verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto... Jesus didn't come, he says, to draw the attention to himself so that he could occupy the position of an earthly king. He could have had that. And in John 6 verse 15, the people were ready to make him a king, but he prevented it. That's not the reason he came. Rather, in verse 45 here, he says the reason he came was to give his life a ransom for many. He didn't come to be physically served by others. Rather, He came to serve others by giving His life for them. That challenges us so amazingly today, doesn't it? The thought of a servant. One of the greatest challenges and charges of all is this text before us, isn't it? 
that I, rather than exalting myself and lifting myself up so that you should bow at my feet, and the same could be said of any other person, rather my mentality and yours ought to be, in what way can I assist, serve, minister, and help in the way that God would have me do so that I might simply be a minister and servant in His kingdom? It's no wonder the early church had such a powerful influence upon a world because that was their attitude. Satan always wants us in the world to lift our head up. Isn't that what Diotrephes did in the book of 3 John? It was he who had the preeminence among them because that's what he wanted. But John says, I'll deal with him when I come. 3 John verse 9. Today, that again is not our charge and it's not our mission. Our mission is humble service in the kingdom of the Lord. Are you and I happy to use our talents, however meager they may be, in the simple service of the kingdom of the Lord? If so, what a great servant we shall be. But if, on the other hand, our mentality is, I won't do that because that's beneath the dignity of me. I won't stoop that low. Somebody else needs to do that. If that's our mentality... Perhaps it'll be only a short period of time before God will bring us to our knees in the language of 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 through 14. And in so doing, we shall understand that our calling all along was not purposefully to be great. God will make us great when we humbly serve Him. Jesus again says, verse 43, So shall it not be among you. In the world, we notice governmental leaders clamor for position. Educators clamor for tenure and promotion and occupation. The the work world of service desires the highest positions. Jesus says you and I need to desire simply to be a servant. And uh, in fact, appreciate the fact that in that position of servanthood, we can be the greatest ones of all. Interesting how much different Jesus' definition of greatness is than is the world's definition, isn't it? So often, biblical truth is such a stark reminder that this world is literally not our home. We're here for a while. Whatever we've done here needs to be under the banner of what shall be great hereafter. What shall it matter on the day of judgment that one could say, I was a legislator, I was a CEO? I was a company president. I was the one who occupied the president of some social organization. Ultimately, will that matter much then? Will it matter any at all? What will matter is if one could say, I used that position that I had in the best way of service for the kingdom of the Lord that I could. Be that as a teacher, be that as an administrator, be that as an employee on a factory line, All of that challenges us to think about how those apostles responded to a teaching much like this. Did they hear it well? Did it surprise and shock them? It would seem to have been somewhat surprising, wouldn't it? In the verses that follow and in the chapter that follows, they themselves were reminded that the authority from heaven or from men are the only choices And they needed to ever appreciate God's authority from heaven and to live in humble dignity and in humble submission to it. As you can see near the bottom of that slide, there are several stations, several positions, several passages in the New Testament that make reference to the very thought before us today. 
I would invite you in briefness to consider 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 14. On that occasion, as Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, a church, by the way, that was bothered by the very issue before us. You might remember, some of them in the church wanted the gift of tongues. We want to be able to speak in unknown languages. They wanted those gifts so that they could impress others. Paul had to tell them those tongues are not given for that purpose. They're given so that you can edify each other. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 6 and following. It was in chapter 5, verse 14, he said, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And he died for all, that they which live should not live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Paul told the Corinthians, Who are you living for? Who are you living to? As an humble servant, are you living to God? Or are you living for yourself? If it's the latter, you are making a great mistake, he told them. You'll notice another passage found in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 helps us see that there is an understood hierarchy in God's plan of things. Just as the woman is subservient to the man, the man is subservient to Christ, Christ is subservient to God, the Father. As God set those things forth, doesn't He challenge us that each of us have our stations in life, the things by talent and prerogative we're able to occupy, and it should be our loving disposition to strive to occupy them in humility and to simply carry out the things that would be the wishes of God. As you can see in Ephesians 5, both husbands and wives are given their charges and their commissions. Later in that chapter, servants and masters are done the same. I would submit then to each of us that perhaps it's time to think as we come near the close of the lesson about these two questions that we'll use to close it. These questions are rather personally directed to each and every one of us. Are you and am I a happy servant of Christ? Or do we want the positions of authority like James and John did? I submit that if the latter is our desire, we again do not really understand what we're asking. We need another lesson on humble service simply striving to be those who would be the great servants of the Lord and thus allow Him to make of the greatness that He would. So do you and I gladly serve others? Husbands, do you serve your wife in the proper way? Wives, do you serve your husband in the proper way? Children, do you serve your parents in the way you should? As parents, do we honor and support our children as the Scriptures tell us that we should? In every station of life, those kinds of questions might be answered. How well are we doing? Maybe in the year 2012, one of the things that should challenge us is to appreciate the need for humble service in the kingdom of the Lord and in all the ways God would allow us to be a servant of His. It is in that way of servanthood that we can influence so many because didn't again Jesus say that He will be chiefest, will be servant of all. Today, if you haven't relinquished your life to Jesus as the Master, why are you waiting? There will never be a better day than the first day of January in the year 2012, a day in which you could become a member of the body of Christ. In Acts chapter 2, verse 47, we read, And the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. If you haven't been added to the church, at this point you're not saved yet. 
despite what the denominational world may teach and the language they may use, salvation does not come apart from obedience to the gospel. You need to hear the blessed word of the Lord. Believe Jesus with all your heart to be the Son of God, John 8, 24. Repent of the sins in your life, Luke 13, 3. Confess His name as a Son of God, Matthew 10, 28 and following. And then be baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 2, 38. If today we could assist you in that, what a day for rejoicing it would be. And what a day for you as you begin serving as a servant in the kingdom of the Lord. If you have become that Christian in days gone by, but maybe you've reached the point where you haven't been happy with being a servant, you have sought the position of preeminence and priority, and perhaps like those of the New Testament era, you too have now distanced yourself from Christ because of that. You need at once to do this. You need to quickly humble yourself, put Jesus back on the throne of your heart as you obey Him shortly today as we stand and sing in a moment, Confess those sins in your life and repent of them. Ask brethren to pray for you under the banner of Acts 8 verses 20 and following. Jesus has promised that the God of heaven will forgive those sins and you can be reinstated to a position of servant. In that record of the prodigal son of Luke 15, you might remember that the father as God lovingly waited for the son to return. But when the son returned, as blessed as he was, he still occupied the position of a son. He wasn't elevated to being the position of the father yet. You and I will appreciate that greatest glory on that final day of the day of judgment. If today you need to humbly submit to the things of the New Testament and become a faithful Christian, why not let us assist you and help you? And to do that at once while together we stand and while we sing.